Well, if you have your Bibles with you today, and I hope you do, turn with me to Titus chapter 3. We're going to be in Titus 3, looking at verses 1 to 7. We'll be in Titus this week, and then the, the last week of the year, and then we'll start a new study in the fall. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Father God, we just thank you for Christmas, that you appeared and brought hope for everyone. We have promises about our future based upon you coming in the past. And thus, in the present, we can live hopeful, happy lives, no matter what trial comes our way. What good news, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for the, for the hope of the gospel. Thank you for the mercy and grace that was poured out in that Christmas moment. Thank you for your appearing because our salvation is all tied up in that moment. Lord, I pray that as we take a look at this passage and that we're reminded once again of your grace, I pray that we would, we would feel the weight of a couple of charges in here, that we would walk away more transformed into your image as a result. But Lord, I pray that we would also just be refreshed again as we ponder your gracious work in our life. And Lord, I pray that we would make it our habit, our daily habit of going back to the well, of going back to your grace over and over and over again and letting it shape how we view the world, how we deal with problems, how we relate to others. Help us to be people who extend grace. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, the church that I grew up in had a basketball gym. Now, if you're not from Texas, this was kind of a common thing for large uh, churches in the 70s and 80s to build a, a basketball gym. And it's great to have a basketball gym as a church. You can do all sorts of activities. And, and, and when you walked into our gym when I was a kid, th- there was a banner hanging up right when you walked in. And the banner said, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Now listen, the, the heart behind that banner was to play volleyball and roller skate in a way that glorified God. Okay, that was the heart behind it. Basically, it was, hey, don't be a jerk in the church basketball league. That's what that banner was all about. Now there's a couple of problems with that banner. The first problem is, is that people uh, Reference the person who said that to, as Francis Assisi, who was, he was an old Roman Catholic uh, friar, a monk. He started the Franciscan order. There's mounting evidence that he didn't actually say that. So if you care about those sort of accuracies like I do, that's the first problem with the quote. But the real problem with the quote is, is that you can't preach the gospel without using words. You've got to use your words. So 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. You've got to use words to do that. The, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go and make disciples. How? Teaching them. Paul summarizes his ministry in Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim. With our words, we say things about him. Here in Titus, if you go back to the, to the opening verses of this, Titus 1, 1 to 3, he talks about that, Titus, your ministry is to be about increasing the knowledge of God's people. How? Verse 3, by preaching by using your words. And then over the last couple of weeks, as we looked at Titus chapter two, we saw a couple of admonitions. Number one, we were, uh, Titus was called uh, to teach what accords with sound doctrine, Titus 2.1. And then the whole chapter ends in, in 15 saying, declare these things. 
Friends, please hear me very clearly. You can't do any of those biblical admonitions without using your words. If you're going to preach the gospel, you've got to use your words. Now, now that's where Titus 3, 1 to 7 becomes very important. Because we need to be reminded today, again, to declare with our words God's grace. But we also need to be reminded of a second thing, to extend the gospel of grace. So we're to teach it, we're to declare it, we're to share it, but we're not given a license to be a jerk in the church basketball league. You see, we need to remember that it's the natural thing to be a jerk in the church basketball league. That's the natural thing. Not the supernatural thing, but that's the natural thing. And I learned that lesson the hard way. You see, this is a relevant illustration to me because I literally got into a fist fight one time in the church basketball league, okay? And so after that experience, I saw firsthand that it's a supernatural thing to turn the other cheek. It's not a, it's not a natural thing. And that's why this reminder is so important because, because if, you don't, if you just do the natural thing out of your own strength, then you're going to turn people away from the gospel. You need uh, the, the, the supernatural thing in your life. You need God working in your life to give you any sort of credibility to the words that you're saying about the gospel. You see, your, your life can either hurt the credibility of the gospel or it can help the credibility of the gospel. You see, the guys who were in that gym that day on that team and sitting in the stands, if I quickly came back around at halftime and did like the, the gospel message, but that wasn't going to work very well, right? Like, like there needs to be a pairing of your life with your words. So today what I want us to do is I want us to just very briefly look back at chapter 2 because the context of chapter 3 is really important. We need to understand what's leading up to these first two admonitions. So we're going to quickly, just very quickly, look back at chapter 2, and then we're going to see this call to extend grace to authorities and then extend grace to others and then remember that we also need grace. Let's look at Titus chapter 3, 1 to 7. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing out days in, in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done, done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly. How? Through Christ Jesus our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That passage doesn't fully make sense unless you remember from the previous passage to teach. If you look back up to Titus 2.1, we see a charge to teach what accords with godliness. So listen, Titus 3 is going to call us to remember, remind them of some things. But it's within the context 
of teach what accords to doctrine. So really, a better way to understand this is not remember, but therefore remember. It, it's connected to the previous passage. And, and teach what accords to sound doctrine. That's the charge, the umbrella charge that goes over this. And after he gave that in, in verse 1, he then taught us how to do it. So he gave us the nuts and bolts and the mechanics of how to teach. He, he talked about how to teach sound doctrine to men and women and bond servants. And all of that was according to the theme of the book of Titus. We've said that the theme of the book of Titus is to be devoted to good doctrine and to good deeds. And we've really seen that the, the real emphasis of the book is that you can't divorce those two things. So you can't say, okay, we can teach good doctrine, but it doesn't really lead to good deeds. You can't divorce those things. Teaching good doctrine is meant to lead to good, good deeds and, and, and godly life. And if it doesn't, we're doing it wrong. That's kind of the point of the book of Titus. So, so he's saying there, listen, we are to teach good doctrine, but that's to lead to good lives. But, but then he ends the, the whole chapter in verse 15 by, de, by this call to declare it. So remember to declare, remember to teach, and remember to declare. Now this second section from 11 to 15, this really kind of gets to the, to the heart of sound doctrine. The, the previous section gets into the mechanics of how to do it, but this second section really gets to the why. The reason why you're to teach good doctrine is because of God's grace. That's why you're to teach good doctrine. That's, that's the, the reason why. That's actually the content of your teaching should be good doctrine. That's also uh, uh, God's grace is also the, the power that you teach in. And, and further, it's really the heart of sound doctrine is God's grace or the good news or the gospel. So after the nuts and bolts in, the, in those first 10 verses, we, we then take this refreshing dive into the gospel. So, so we saw last week that uh, the good news that, that God's mercy has been brought to all kinds of people. We saw how God's empowering grace, it enables us to say no to certain things, but also then to say yes to other things. That, that, that God's fueling unmerited favor, it enables us to wait. Like the Christian experience is waiting. Christ isn't here. He's going to return. And so we're waiting, but we wait with hope. We wait as, as happy waiters because we know that he's going to return. And God's grace enables us to do that. It also, uh, we saw in the previous section that, that God's grace enables us to be zealous for godliness. Like, like when we really walk with the Lord and we really experience his grace, then, then we want to live these good, godly lives. But, but then the whole section ends with this, this punch where he says, declare these things. If all that's true, declare it, exhort, rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. Use your words to declare the good news of God's grace. But as you do, as you teach it, as you declare it, remember to extend grace. And specifically, extend grace to authorities. Look again at verse 1. Remind them then to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Again, the context here is to teach and, and declare. But what he's saying here is, is listen, they're not going to be able to hear it. They're not going to be able to receive it if you're not a good citizen. Okay. Now, it's very important to understand the context here. Because somebody could, could just pluck Titus 3, 1 and 2 out of context and say, listen, all being a Christian is, is you just be a good citizen, you just pay your taxes, you be nice to the people around you, and I've fulfilled my Christian duty. If, if you do that with these verses, you've taken them out of context. Because he's been very clear in the previous passage, teach and proclaim. 
got to use your words. But, but then he's making this connection that, that if your words in your, in your life are, are, are not harmonious, are not in sync here, th- then they're not going to be able to hear your words. In other words, you, you're, what, what he's saying is, is, that, uh, is that we live, if we live faithful lives as faithful citizens, that gives credibility to the gospel of grace that we teach and declare. If we don't live as good citizens, it then disqualifies our words about the gospel. Does that make sense? In other words, in order for our words about grace to have credibility, we then need to extend grace. We can't divorce our doctrine from our deeds. We need to extend grace in order to persuade people to the gospel. And the first group that we're supposed to specifically extend grace to is authorities. And we do that in two ways. He says there's really two ways to do that. The first way is you submit. That means that we are to embrace this subordinate position to our authorities. So in other words, we are to respect the government. And I think this is a heart issue. I think this is something on the, on the inside from our heart. We're to be submissive. But it doesn't stay in our heart. It spills out then to the outside because then he says, be obedient. So the second thing is that the way you, uh, the way you um, extend grace to authorities is not only are you submissive in your heart, but you're obedient. This means that you comply with the rules of the government. We should be rule followers, not rule breakers. And listen, this passage is very consistent with the other two passages in the New Testament that talk about how we're to relate to the government. In Romans 13 and then 2 Peter 2, the same themes are all here. And what those passages, along with this passage, teach us is, listen, the government is a God-ordained institution to administer justice and order. That's why they're there. Therefore, we should kind of quietly keep our heads down and do good. We shouldn't be foolish in how we relate to the government. We should be wise. We should honor our rulers. And if you haven't read Romans 13, I'll give you the bad news. It also says you've got to pay your taxes, okay? It's very clear. That's what it means to be obedient. That's what it means to be submissive, pay your taxes. Now, anytime you step into uh, New Testament passages on how to relate to the government, you've got to give some historical context, right? Because where they were living in the first century, that's a very different government system than what we live in today. They were living in a world that was openly hostile to Christianity in ways that we just haven't experienced yet in this country. They were a generation removed from the Roman government killing Jesus. Okay, So, so their fears about like systemic persecution of them, they were real legitimate fears. And let's be clear, the emperor was not a believer. The emperor didn't pretend to be a believer or claim to be a believer. And further, he wanted people to worship him. They also didn't vote for him. And, and there wasn't an opportunity four years later to vote the bums out. Okay, This was their emperor. They had no control over that. And their government was hostile to their faith. However, the Christians were told to submit to him and to honor him. However, unlike the the first century church on the island of Crete, living under Roman rule. We, we live in this modern democracy, right? So you and I actually participate in ruling, don't we? So there's a sense that we're the rulers and we're ruled. So, so there's these different competing verses sometimes that feels that way uh, about how we're supposed to relate to the government. So we're, we need to submit when the election is over. Like fight, advocate, make your persuasive arguments, and then when it's over, we're to submit, and we need to, to vote and rule in ways that, that honor the Lord. We're in a modern democracy. 
but, but also the, the state of play within that modern democracy, and this is probably the understatement of the year, but we live in divisive times, right? Now listen, we're not 1858 when that one congressman killed another one. In, we're not there, you know, by God's grace. But, but since the, the Bush-Gore election of 2000, we have been in politically divisive times. And part of why it's divisive is, is the, the nation as a whole is constantly drifting secular, right? It, it's constantly going in that direction, which means our country as a whole is, is losing these religious, this, the, the, we're losing our civil religion, we're, we're losing these cultural norms that, that have been part of this country since the, the beginning. And as a result of that, Christians are, are being vilified. Christian convictions are being vilified, Right? you're in corporate America, you feel it. If you're in higher education, you know it's there. Christian convictions are being vilified. And here's what happens. This can make Christians fearful. This can make Christians fearful. And and then we participate in toxic division. A number of years ago, Saturday Night Live uh, created a character they called Drunk Uncle. You guys remember Drunk Uncle? This is Bobby Moynihan. They'd roll him out on on Weekend Update. And and here was the, the gist of Drunk Uncle. Drunk Uncle was brought out, and he would just kind of spout off these random, convoluted thoughts about kind of his crazy political opinions, all these crazy conspiracy theories that he just kind of mumbled through. And the point of Drunk Uncle and the bit was is that that's how young people viewed older people and their views of politics, okay? That's the point. That's the gist of Drunk Uncle, is that the younger people just kind of rolled their eyes at their nutty, crazy uncles. Now, if you're middle-aged or, or if you're older, the, the, the drunk uncle skit is, is really helpful for you because I want to say something clearly. You, you're actually called to persuade the younger generations about the gospel, about all sorts of things, including politics, okay? You do need to persuade them, but you need to know that, that the average young person just kind of thinks you're a little nutty. And if you're a young person, you're told by our society that there's wisdom in youth. That's very unbiblical, by the way. Like, the Bible says there's wisdom in gray hairs. The 17-year-olds, they don't know what they're talking about. They think they do, but they don't. You got gray hair, you know what you're talking about, okay? So the older generations are supposed to persuade the younger generations politically, okay? And, And all sorts of things. But you need to know that they think you're a little nutty. They think you're a little nutty. So if you're in these older generations, why this is helpful is, is you need to understand that as you try to persuade them, you need to do it in ways that are thoughtful, substantive, focused, not unhinged, not nutty. You know, if you're in the younger generations, you, you need to kind of be mature enough to, to, to kind of get past what you think is maybe this crazy thing that they're saying, and you need to be mature enough to listen to what they're actually saying. Because you know what's gold about Drunk Uncle? Drunk uncle will say these kind of things. And I remember when I was young, people would say, oh, that's just a slippery slope argument. Well, so drunk uncle, he's got these slippery slope arguments. But you know, what, you know what the truth is? Sometimes they come true. If you go back to those drunk uncle arguments, sometimes he actually nails it. So, so young people, you need to be mature enough to listen to the older generations on some of these things. I'll put my cards on the table. Most of the presidential candidates that I've voted for since becoming adult, since becoming an adult, most of the time they lose. I'm two for four. Okay, I sat out on one of them, but I'm I'm two for four. Okay, and what that means is, and maybe this 
is the case for you, it might mean that, that you're going to have to submit and honor people that you didn't support. Titus 3.1 is calling us to be submissive and respectful and obedient to the government. And the government that is a government that sometimes we don't support. And a government that is sometimes hostile to our values and our religion. However, as Christians, we're called to extend grace to our authorities in order to give credibility to our words that we teach and declare about God's grace. For 200 years, left-leaning theologians have tried to kind of hijack Jesus and say he's like this revolutionary political figure. He's not, okay? Like, like biblical Christianity is not a politically revolutionary movement. It's not. Titus 3 is very clear that biblical Christianity was a politically submissive movement from the very beginning. Do those around you view you as a crazy drunk uncle? Is there immaturity and thoughtfulness in in how you view politics? Do your comments about politics and political leaders, do they open doors or do they close doors for people around you to hear the gospel? Remember to extend grace to your authorities. Well, that's a specific category that we're to extend grace to. Now he talks about it in a more general way. Remember to extend grace to others. Look at verse 2. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Titus 3.1 is about extending grace upwards, vertically. But, but Titus 3.2, it's about extending grace horizontally to, to people around you. Not, not a specific group, but, but generally, this is how we're to relate to people. So, so Titus 3.2, it's helpful because uh, it gets to how we are to specifically extend grace to others, really in four key areas. Number one, Extending grace means that we're not to speak evil or untruths about other people. So Christians should say things that are true and righteous about other people. Number two, extending grace means that we're to have this kind of general spirit that's not argumentative. So Christians should say things that are are peaceful and and, and encouraging and reconciling. And and third, extending grace means that uh, we're not to be harsh towards others. So we're to say things that are kind to others and about others. And number four, extending grace means that we're not to be arrogant and obnoxious towards others. So Christians should say things that are humble and considerate. Uh, Jeff Foray is a biblical counseling professor. And uh, using Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, he says there's really kind of four guardrails, if you will, of how Christians are supposed to communicate. We're to say things that are, are true and not false. We're to say things that are reconciling, not fueling bitterness. We're to say things that are edifying, not unwholesome. And we're to say things that are gracious and not impulsive. Titus 3.2 reminds us that how we speak to and about others, it either gives or takes away gospel credibility. Like, like it either persuades people to the gospel of grace or it turns people away from it. But, but I want you to hear something. Titus 3.2, this is the most convicting verse in this passage. Like, it, 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 this hits you in some way, I promise, okay? This, this verse should convict you in some way. I, I don't know how, but, but I promise you it's going to hit you somewhere. Like, I look at this verse, and I see more than, more than one on here. Like, yeah, that's an area I need to grow in. Yep, I struggle right there. Like, like this verse is meant to convict you. It's meant to say, listen, ungracious speech, it's natural speech, 
Like this is how we naturally operate. Like, and so it should convict you. And it, and it should say, listen, you need God's grace. You need God's grace to speak graciously. You see, we need to remember that we too need grace. And this is now where we're at the, the really good part of the passage. You see, verses 3 to 7, they call us to remember that you too needed grace. Look again at 3 to 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaved to various passions and pleasures, passing out days in malice and envy, hated by others and, and, and hating one another. But, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, amen, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Like, hear me, when you want to be a jerk on the basketball court, remember that you too needed grace. You see that there? When you're, when you're tempted to just spout off that comment, critical of that person, remember that prior to God's unmerited favor, each and every one of us was foolish, disobedient, led astray, slave to various passions and pleasures, passing out our days in malice and envy, hated by others in hating one another. In other words, we were fallen. We were held in bondage to our fallenness. We weren't as bad as we could possibly be. But we weren't born morally good. We weren't even born morally neutral. We were born morally bad. We made fools of ourselves. And then we spent years embarrassed by it, struggling with the shame of that thing that we said or that we did. We, we broke our parents' rules. We broke our school's rules. We, we, we broke our society's rules. We were caught up in, in bad ideas and bad behaviors. We, we were controlled and thus held in bondage by these raging emotions within us and, and, and this raging fleshly desires. We brooded over the bad things that were done to us and we became embittered over how things were better for somebody else. Maybe we put on a smile and maybe just through gritting teeth, we just shoved out some kind words. But in reality, we hated other people. In other words, we needed God's righteousness because we weren't righteous. But hear the good news, but God's. Amen? You see that in that verse? But God. That's the best news I can tell you today. But God. Look back at verse 4. In the middle of all that depravity, all that selfishness, all that silliness, God, our Savior, appeared. He stepped into all this. And when he came down, look at what he brought with him. He brought his goodness and his loving kindness, verse 4. He brought with him righteousness and helpfulness and generosity. He, he brought this desire to give good things. He brought his tenderness he brought his hesed, this, this commitment, this loyal commitment to his covenant promises, to his covenant people. He promised to fulfill all of that. On Christmas, it was like this bomb went off of love and goodness and kindness and righteousness and mercy and grace. All of it just spilled out from that moment. And in the wake of that blast, verse 5 says that he saved us. But like we were yanked off this conveyor belt that was just taking us down to damnation. He, he, he rescued us from the fire. 
We, we were drowning and he showed up as the lifeboat. Now, now listen, I know we're not robots, but, but really our only role in, in our salvation was just letting, us, letting him pull us out of the fire. Like that was our role, okay? So, so if you want to stick with the lifeboat drowning image, it was basically you were drowning in this dark, icy water, and, and, and he comes up with a life raft, and you say, I don't need a life raft. And he goes, honey, and, and he picks you up, he snaps it on you, and you're kicking and cussing, and yet he brings you into the lifeboat, and he saves you. That's his grace. Your role was just to receive it. And I know that because in Titus 3.5, he says that it was not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He gave us not what we deserved. Amen? He gave us mercy. Some people say that conversion is God reaching down and us reaching up. I think we have to be very careful with that image. Because I've known a lot of people who use that image and then they really pride in that little bit that they reached up. And then they mock people who are so dumb. They're so dumb that they don't. It's so obvious. Like that's their response to people who don't, who don't reach up. They're just, they're just dumb. And, and behind that comment is this pride that I was able to reach up. None of our righteous works were good enough to save us. It was only his mercy that saved us. Maybe a better image is, is that we're like this filthy animal and we're just face down in the mud, loving every second of it, and then God in his mercy picked us up and washed us off. Your salvation was not because of your good works. It was because of his one merciful, gracious work. Amen? Now, more specifically, when we were converted, the Holy Spirit says he washed us in verse 5. He washed us, and thus we were regenerated and we were renewed. You see, friends, when you think those, those politicians that you hate, when you think about them or you think about those people in your life that you, get, that you can't stand, you're to remember that you're just like them except for God's mercy and grace. You're just like them except for God's gracious work in your life of washing your soul, of regenerating you and giving you life, of renewing you and making you whole. You didn't wash yourself. You, you didn't give yourself new life. You didn't renew yourself. He did it. The Holy Spirit washed, regenerated, and renewed that moment that you were converted. But, I, but actually, I'm just getting started, by the way. Like, what, what was the mechanism of all that? What, what, was, what was the good work that made all that happen? Look at verse 6. All that was through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen? In other words, all that grace, it was, it was channeled through that one good work on the cross. All of it comes through him. And notice that he says in verse 6 that, that that grace was poured out on us richly. So, so it was like this, this channel and, the, and these floodgates were open and then this grace just spills out like water just roaring out at you. It just covered us. His rich pouring of grace was because Jesus' work on the cross was an atoning work. It, it, it paid this debt that you couldn't pay. You remember the Old Testament. That they'd bring the lamb out and shed its blood for God's people. And so the wrath of God was satisfied because, because of the payment for the sins of God. So they didn't pay it. This animal paid it. He was the atonement. But in that moment uh, that, that Jesus' life was taken, justice was satisfied. So Jesus died in our place. He was our substitute. He was our atonement. He removed all the obstacles of sin so that he could then 
pour out on us richly. Amen? That's what he accomplished for you. It was through Jesus Christ, our Savior, verse 6, and his atoning work on the cross that you have all that grace. But the good news gets even better than that because that work actually changes our status legally kind of in this cosmic court. So before that, you're in this category of guilty. You see, see, God sees you. He pulls you up out of that icy water through Jesus' work on the cross. Then the Spirit comes and He washes you. He regenerates you. He renews you. And Jesus' righteousness in that moment is imputed upon you. His righteousness is applied to your legal ledger, if you will. So uh, kind of like Abraham, you, you, are not, uh, you are not naturally or actually or internally righteous, right? You were reckoned righteous. We're all just like Abraham. And Abraham was a dirtbag, by the way. When I, when I teach my students about being reckoned righteous and we talk about Abraham, I always tell them if Abraham was in my church and he did that, we'd be going down church discipline process, okay? Abraham was a dirtbag. In, in, internally, he was not righteous. It was something outside of him. It was an alien, foreign righteousness that was laid on top of him. That's the good news. It's not go be righteous. It's I've given you my righteousness. There's an exchange that has happened. Even though we were never actually righteous, we were credited with Jesus' righteousness. And thus, by Jesus' grace, you were justified. And I'm not done yet. Amen? Look where the passage goes next. You see, the good news gets even better because not only have you been moved into this new legal category, you're put into a new family. Amen? Like, like, switch the courtroom. Maybe the previous courtroom is, is like you're sitting there and we're trying to decide, is he going to jail or not? I'm not going to jail. Then you switch over to family courts. And we've all loved those scenes and pictures and videos that we've seen of our friends when they, when they adopt that baby, right? Like that, that boy moves from a boy to a son. She moves from a girl to a daughter legally in that moment. And it's glorious. And what happens in that moment prior to that? They're not an heir. But after that, they become an heir. Everything that those parents own, they're going to be passed down to that child. Friends, you were born into sin, but now you've been imputed with Jesus' righteousness. You're justified. You're reckoned righteous, and then you're adopted into his family. You're an heir with a new inheritance. And friend, that inheritance is better than any inheritance that your parents will leave you. It's better than some land or mineral rights or life insurance. That inheritance, he says there, is eternal life. Through, though your body uh, may die, your soul will immediately enter into paradise with Jesus. Immediately. And this is a covenant promise that he's made to you. That's your inheritance. It's been sealed by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why he bought you, Christian but it was to give you mercy so that you would have the hope of eternal life, Titus 3.7. Isn't that good news? Isn't all that, that, that glorious, gracious good news, isn't that better than anything that this, this world has to offer? Isn't that better than some sort of like vague and ambiguous ramblings about the Christmas spirit? Like, isn't that better than anything? That is what you have. That is God's grace. He appeared at Christmas to save you. And he didn't say, okay, be as righteous as you can possibly be, and then I'll save you. No, he says, your righteousness is never going to be good enough. So you know what I'm going to do? 
I'm going to give you mine. He gives us his righteousness, and then his spirit washes us, gives us new life, brings us into his family, and we're given this promise, sealed by his blood and by the spirit, to become an heir with an inheritance of eternal life. If that's good news to you today, say amen. That is good news. You see, those gospel truths, that's where, what we're supposed to remember when that politician says something that we don't like. <laughs> that's what we're to be reminded of when that politician advances policies that are hostile to your biblical convictions. And hear me, that's what we're to preach to each other when that politician passes laws that persecute us. You see, that is what is to flood our minds when, that, when those older guys from Sanger are bullying your younger brother's church league basketball team made up of a bunch of high school sophomores. That's what was supposed to go through my mind. Remember those glorious gospel truths and how God gave you grace when you want to be ungracious towards authorities and others. Don't be a jerk in the church basketball league. Maybe, maybe that's what you need to hear today from Titus 3. The reason that you shouldn't be a jerk in the church basketball league has less to do with the success of your business or your personal safety. It has way more to do with the credibility of the gospel that you teach and declare. That's why you're not supposed to be a, a jerk in the church basketball league. If we teach a gospel of grace and don't extend grace, then it makes our words unpersuasive. How do you need to extend grace to authorities? Now, I want to be careful on that question because I, we don't have time for all of it, right? I mean, and, we, and we don't, we're not a political church, okay? But, but Titus 3 isn't saying that politics aren't important. It's not saying that. And I, and I know some of us like, like to live there. It's not saying that. Listen, some of us, we maybe need to pay better attention to what's going on. And, and I probably should say this more. Some of us might need to step into the political arena. Like this, and the reality of it is, is that we need more faithful Bible-believing politicians. So Titus 3 is not saying that politics is unimportant. And also, and I want to be clear on this, Titus 3 isn't saying that what they're doing is right and good. If, if over lunch we want to complain about something, I'm with you, okay? I don't think what this is saying is what they're doing is right and good. Friend, we should understand what's going on and we should vote according to what we know to be true and good. Rather, Titus 3 is just calling us to be submissive even when they don't deserve it. Titus 3 is calling us to obey even when they're immoral. Titus 3 is calling us to extend grace. And it's warning us that if we don't, we're going to lose credibility when we preach grace. How do you need to extend grace to authorities? But second, further, how do we need to extend grace to others? If you speak evil about other people, or you say untrue things about them, then they're not going to believe you when you declare the gospel of grace to them. If you're harsh or obnoxious or argumentative with them, they're not going to be persuaded to the gospel of grace. But if you're gentle, if you're courteous, if you're kind, if you're thoughtful and gracious, then they're going to be able to hear the gospel of grace. Remember to extend grace to others by remembering the grace that was extended to you. Remember the Christmas prophecy. Isaiah prophesied, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and what? The government shall be upon his shoulder. 
And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and what? Prince of Peace. The prophecy says that the government shall be upon his shoulders. We're individualists. We're Americans. We have a proud tradition of criticizing our government. But know that every government throughout the history of the world can be criticized, right? Every government can. But don't forget that a child is bearing the burdens of the world. There's a child behind that. He's bearing the burdens of the world, but here's the good news. He's bringing in a better world. That's our hope. Your hope's in some politician. Man, you're the biggest fool there is. We have something better. The good news of Titus 3 is, but God, our Savior, appeared. Amen? That's the hope of the gospel. Then he poured it out on us richly, his mercy and grace. Remember to extend grace to others by remembering the grace that was extended to you. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this passage. And Lord, I think there's a lot of convicting things for me in there. Thank you that I haven't gotten in a fight in a church basketball league in a long time. It's evidence of your grace. Lord, we're all on this, this journey. We're on this journey of, of believing your grace more, applying it more, not divorcing our doctrine from our deeds. And Lord, as, as we struggle, help us to go back to the well. Help us to go back to the grace that you extended to us, that glorious good news that you appeared, you saved, you reconciled, you justified. You made us an heir and you promise eternal life. Lord, may that be our hope today. And may that drive how we relate to other people. Lord, may we teach and declare your grace. But as we do that, may we also extend grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.